0: Morning, everybody. This morning, if you turn in your Bibles to James chapter 4, one of the joys and one of the commitments that as an eldership we have is to be a church that is built on the Word of God, that God's Word would sustain us and keep us. And that we would be led by God's word. And what it means is that we're going to go through chunks of the Bible. We're going to, we're going to preach through books of the Bible. And often some of the chapters in the, this, the, the parts of the Bible we read is quite hard to listen to. We're going, if I could skip this, we would skip it. And, and because of that commitment, it, it leads us to conversations. And, and hopefully we know, we have a full trust as an eldership, that God will sustain and keep you as a church and as a people as long as we preach God's word. that It will feed you. This morning, my topic may be something you've all wondered at some stage in your life, in church life. Or not what, but why can't we all get along? Did I say what? Sorry. Why can't we get along? I'm going to blame post-nasal. Why can't we all just get along? Ever wondered that about church? Anybody? Anybody? Like, why is this so tricky? Shouldn't we just all get on? I've wondered that many, many, many times in my life as a Christian. But imagine the scene of a mom... Walking in, and she hears next door. You've all seen that if you've had children, or even if you're a granny, everything goes quiet for a while. You go, this is too quiet. And then everything breaks into chaos next door, and you're going, uh-oh, there's World War Three happening with my toddlers or my children next door. And the mom rushes in, and there's hair grabbing going on. There's kicking and screaming and pointing of fingers going on. Can you imagine your worst scene that you walk into? And then the mom tries to settle them, and the mom goes, okay, what is the first question we normally ask? Okay, what started this? Or who started it? Eh? Hey? And then eventually the mom, and then the mom discovers that actually I gave the one child a muffin for breakfast, and they walked into the next room, and the others got upset because the one child had a muffin, and wanted, hey, where's my muffin, and got angry and wanted to share it without their permission, and started grabbing at the muffin. Can you imagine the scene? And now the mom goes, who started the fight? And the, the one with the muffin says, no, the one grabbed it from me. And the, the one that didn't have a muffin saying, but mom, you gave this person this and you didn't give me that. What's going on here? And then the mom says to the one that didn't get a muffin, why didn't you just ask me for your muffin? I've got one for you. Can you imagine the silliness of just that scene? We've all been there, done that. Hey, as, as kids, the amount of many wars that we've had to settle as parents, And in some ways, what James is doing to the church is almost like this. He's walked into and he's seeing this young church, early church, and he's going, what's going on? Who started these fights and squabbles amongst you? Who started it? What started it? And why didn't you just ask God to help you? We're going to read that together from verse 1 to 6. James 4, verse 1 to 6. What causes quarrels... And what causes fights among you? This is to the church. This is not to the city. This is to the church. Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? In other words, in opposition with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is it is to no purpose that the, that the Scriptures say, He yearns jealousy over the spirit that He has to dwell in us. This is God's jealousy over His people. Verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What a passage of Scripture. Let's pray. Let's prepare our hearts for this. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love for your church. Thank you for the book of James. Thank you for the lessons we learn. But, Lord, we want to place ourselves on the altar. We want to, we want to place ourselves before your word and look into our own lives and go. Jesus, would you speak to us clearly? Would you would you speak to our hearts? Would you would you bring life? Would you bring conviction? Would you bring repentance where there needs to be? Would you work in us, Holy Spirit, through Your Word this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. All God's people said, "Amen." I'm not sounding like the mafia yet. One of the things that often we often hear from new believers when they come to a church, or they join a church, or even new members that get to a church after a few months and go, wow, I didn't realize church is this messy and awkward, and I'm, I'm hearing stories about this, and I didn't realize that person wasn't getting on with that person in the church, or we, 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 we're hearing about favorites and favoritisms, etc., or gossips and infighting, and it shocks new believers sometimes when they come into the life of the church going, hey, what's going on here? Why is it so? Why are these things in the church? I think we can be honest and say that we've all had it, been there, done that in church life. These things are very real. They're so applicable to us. We shouldn't be surprised at this because every single person in this room is busy being transformed into the likeness of Christ. And the, 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 the noun here or the verb here, or the, uh, I think it's the verb, is a, is a proactive verb. It's, it's busy happening, the tense it's busy happening. It is not something that is finished. It's not complete. It is busy happening. What is the word I'm looking for, Lauren? Help me. Continuous tense. Present continuous tense. Thank you. And that's why I didn't get high marks in my English lessons. Um, and I can always say English is my second language. So, But the present continuous tense of the statement is that Jesus is busy, Jesus is busy working in me and busy, busy completing a work in me. We need to remind ourselves of that, that Jesus is not finished with you yet, that the person that you're sitting next to in church is not the complete model of Christ yet. Jesus is still busy working in them. And the reason that's important, because we're going to end this passage with a sense of humility, without understanding that Jesus is not finished with me, it's going to be very hard at the end of this passage to go, I'm going to be humble before God. Because the humility says actually Jesus is not done with me yet, and he's also not done with the person next to me. So who started it? <laughs> who started it? James one the first few verses? What caused he asks these questions? He's got, he walks into the church, he goes, and he just asks these questions. What caused the problems amongst you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire, you do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you squabble. It literally is like the scene I described earlier with our mom walking into the room of of the kids fighting for that one muffin, not realizing there's another one coming. They're already and not yet, this world, this in-between world that we live in as Christians, I would say it's most probably one of the hardest things to get our hearts and our heads around with is that, yes, I'm completely saved, justified in Christ, but I also know that I've got a lot of imperfection in me. I'm not done yet. God is not done with me yet. I don't know, like when Claire was sharing this morning around the shadows, but there's the second one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was going, God, I need that. I need reminding of that. If I was perfect in my faith, I didn't ever need more encouragement because I'm perfect. I don't ever lack faith, so why do, why do I need to ever need you to encourage me? I need you to encourage me. I need to hear God's word. I need God's spirit to, to speak to me through worship. Why? Because there's a lack in me. There's still stuff lacking in me. And as Christ follows, we are plagued with this, by this, and James is speaking about the residual of the old nature, which brings us to lusting and fighting and conflict in our own lives. When we think of these times, when we think of the, what flares up in someone else, What flares up in your temper? What makes you really angry? What gets you to say things where you go, what just came out of my mouth? Did I really say that about my marriage or my friendship or or that person in church or this person? When we think of times where these things flared up, what made those things flare up? What is the first thing and the easiest thing? What is the, the most likely human response to when these quarrels and things happen? They did it. It's them, Mom, it's them. So and so won't share. So and so did this to me. We we are so quick to point the finger and say they are. If only they were more more understanding, if only they were more reasonable towards me, if only they were less demanding, if only they were thoughtful, if only they were considerate, if only they thought of us more and cared more for us. And the answer seems obvious to us that it's in them. If they were just better godly people, we wouldn't be in this situation. And it's so quick to, to do that. Remember the, the, when we were kids, the, the finger pointing, I had a granny, um, granny de Wilson, a German short, about this short. Um, and she used to say, never point a finger because there's three fingers pointing back at you. There's some biblical truth in that. But the natural response is, as soon as we come into conflict or quarrels or disunity and, and whatever, the first thing in our hearts is to put the blame on someone else. and saying, they've caused this in me. If only they were better leaders. If only they were better pastors. If only they were better friends. If only they were better these things. It's easy to shift that. And James is recognizing in the church, is saying, we do that. They do this. However, much we might want to do, to do that James is letting us know, no, the problem is not out there. The problem is in here. James is saying, hey, the finger, no, 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 there's three inside. James is saying to the church, the problem with our conflict and quarrels is not what other people have or what they do or aren't doing. The problem is actually in your own heart. He's saying, hey, honor, if you're in conflict and you're quarreling, etc., it's in your own heart. I'll never forget at Bible college, um, I had a friend, I might have shared this. I've been here for enough years to, to repeat stories every now and then, forgive me. Um that's why they say pastors should move on from churches every every and after the stories get old. <laughs> but I remember at Bible college my third year, a very good friend of mine, and um, we were really good mates. We used to we used to walk together and pray together. We used to have it in my good third year days, not my bad third year days. Um and he would say to me, Hey Honor, how's your your quiet time or your time with God going? How's your how's your time with God, How's your walk with God going? And I'd go that's okay. I think what's what's happening. He goes, no, I can just see, I can see it's not going well. And I go, what do you mean it's not going well? He says, just look, at, I can just see all your friendships are taking strain, or your relationships. You become weird and awkward with people when your relationship with God's not good. And I actually realized that in my third year, what he said was true. The closer I was to God, the more grace I extended, the more the more of a godly man I was towards my friends. It was easier to get on with honor, and the less time I spent with God. The more of a excuse the word jerk I became or the more selfish I became and the more inward self righteous honor became. I think the same is for all of us. Our hearts, if it's away from God, we're hard to live with. And the reality is in church life is none of us have that perfect walk with God. So there's always going to be some gap that we're having to make up with, hopefully by grace. So to understand conflict, we need to understand the desires jostling within us. That are frustrating. So if you're finding yourself in lots of conflict, and and even in church life, not so even in church, especially in church life, the first point of view, the first stop point, or the place to go for James is to check your own heart. Going, hey, what's going on on my inside? Is it your need for recognition? Can't they see how good and faithful and how amazing I am? Why don't they give me some recognition or? Maybe some needs in your own life that's not busy being, or prayers that are not being answered, and you're going, this is unfair. Why are they special and why are not? Why why did they get a muffin and I didn't? Why is their prayer answered and mine not? And there could be that inside of your heart. Or there's this simple thing of, I want life my way, on my terms, at my timeline, the way I like it. Or you're just discontent with your portion. You're just not happy with what God has given you. You see someone else have something you're going, why can't I have that? Surely I desire, des- deserve that. or Surely I'm a little bit of entitlement settling into our hearts. Going, we deserve better than this. Hey God, I give you my tithe. I do this. I, I volunteer at church. Surely I deserve more. I deserve you to answer my prayers. I deserve you to answer those things. James is saying to the church, before you fight, in your quarrels, in what's going on, in the, check your inside first. Stop at, at you first. Ask yourself some big questions first. Why don't we get what we want? James is very blunt here. It gives us two big reasons why some of our prayers aren't being answered. You do not have because you do not ask. That's like, it's like the mom saying, hey... To toddler two, that's ripping the hair out of the, the one with the muffin and trying to bite and fight their way to a piece of their muffin. The, the mom saying to the toddler two, "Hey, hey! If you just asked for a muffin, I would. I've got six muffins here. Which one would you like?" He's saying, "You don't. You don't have because you don't ask, and you ask and do not have, receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your passions." James speaking on prayer, and in one little two little verses, two and a half verses actually, it gives us two of the main reasons why prayers aren't answered. The first is prayerlessness, and the next is wrong motives. Our hearts aren't right. It's quite a double whammy to the church and to you and I. Prayerlessness and wrong motives. Christians allowing these desires to erupt into conflict and forgetting God's grace to them. James 2 says, You do not have a reason to ask prayerlessness, is a sign that someone is trying to run things in their own strength for their own sake and under their own authority. Someone trying to run things in their own strength for their own sake and in their own authority so we don't pray. We don't submit to God, we don't ask Him because we want to do it our way, in our strength, in our, way, in our, in our timing. The one righteous says, prayerlessness arises from a sense of independence from God. So that instead of praying about our desires, we indulge them. Instead of praying about our desires, we indulge them. So instead of saying, God, I've got these desires. Are they godly? Are they from you? We don't even go to God with them. We just indulge them. We just, we, we just feed our desires. Whatever we desire, we give it. Whatever we want, we take. Instead of saying, hey, God, are these things good for me? And rather than trusting in the Father who delights in giving good things to his children, remember Matthew seven eleven, where Jesus says, Ask of the Father, no father will give um, a snake if his son asks for fish, a stone instead of bread. Hey, And how much more won't you give the Spirit to those who ask for the Spirit? That's why I don't, I, don't, I don't understand spiritually insecure Christians who feel, I'm not sure I've got God's Spirit. Like, I'm going... You can't be a Christian without God's Spirit, number one. And number two, God says He'll never ever withhold His Spirit from you if you ask for it. We ourselves decide what is good and seek to gain it through our own efforts. James is saying you you want to play God in your own life. You make the decisions what's good and what's bad, and you decide what you'll have and what you won't have. We've settled that kind of thing. And then when it comes to the second reason, he says... The purpose of prayer, yeah, is not to try to get God to do what we want. It is actually a means by which we align ourselves to his priorities. I grew up in church where you pray because you want God to give you the things that you desire. That's why you pray. If you don't come praying for big things and asking for big things and claiming big things, then you don't have faith and you're not praying right. As I've matured and grown As a Christ follower, I've discovered that more of my prayer time is about honor asking God what's going on and what do you want for my life rather than telling God what I think I know I want for my life. It's very dangerous to fall into the trap where where we think we know what's best for ourselves. Prayer times are not just naming and claiming and showing how much faith I've got. Prayer times also, hey, God, I need a year from you. Hey, God, here are my desires. I know I'm not perfect. I know many of them aren't going to be of you. I trust you to give me what you need to give me. And I'm going to find contentment in what you give me. Hey, that's different to thinking that, and appearing to know that what, we know what we need. <laughs> we know what our, that our desires are pure. Rico Tice puts it like this in his book Honest Evangelism. He says this: we turn God into a divine waiter. He's there to deliver our, our daydream to us, to touch base with him on a Sunday. We put our orders in via prayer. We might even we might give a decent, a decent tip in the collection plate. But God is essentially there to give us what we feel we need. And we get furious. With him if he doesn't deliver. Don't all be too shocked with that <laughs> statement. We turn God into this divine way to He said to deliver our daydream, the things I think and dream about for my life. And when he doesn't deliver, we become angry and frustrated with him and saying, Why are you not giving these things to us? Because we assume that our desires are pure, we assume that our hearts pure. In light of even our relationship and relational difficulties in the church, there's one thing I've discovered, and not just me, I think many have discovered this, is that you will find it almost or nearly impossible for you to war against another person while you are praying for them. If you in conflict with people even in the church, especially in the church, I want to challenge you and say, you try and be angry, warring, furious at them while praying for them. Bring them before God and genuinely pray for God to bless and to love and show mercy and grace to them and see if you can still be angry and furious at them. It's it's impossible. Maybe the answer for us then is to, when we're warring or factioning or whether we're quarreling or there's disunity or relationships are taking pressure in the church, is to actually go to God and just keep praying for those people. Praying for them and pray that God, because what's going to happen in the prayer is, I think what will happen is you're going to start going, oh, I'm finding it hard to pray for them. I actually don't want God to bless them or I actually don't want God to show favor because I, I've got these things. And what happens in prayer is not just the prayer; it's God's going to show you and reveal stuff in your own heart that he wants to deal with. And you might end up in the first few moments of praying going, God, forgive me, rather. <laughs> See what's happened there? God, What's happened is God's Spirit shows you inside and going, hey, Arno, it's wonderful that you're going to pray, but why are you struggling to pray for them? Why don't you want to pray for them? Why don't you want my grace for them or my blessing and my best for your, your brother and sister in Christ? It's a bit different when it comes to praying like that, isn't it? And then James moves towards our own hearts. He goes, he talks about our wandering hearts, our, our hearts that wander away from God. And this is the language that Keller and so many people that we, that we trust and love around the gospel and the, this idea of idolatrous hearts or adulterous hearts where we betray God with our own hearts. In James 4 verse 4. You adulterous people, do you, not, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Not just becomes, you actually are making, you're turning your life into an enemy. You are making yourself, you're turning yourself against God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scriptures say, he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. The imagery has is incredibly, incredibly powerful. I don't think you can use stronger language like this. He deliberately wants us to think of the horror of a husband or a wife discovering that their spouse is busy having an affair. He wants you and I to imagine that and go, can you imagine what that feels like? James says that such horrendous behavior aptly describes what Christians do when they turn their back on God. Saying that is when you turn your back on God and you pursue the world, you are literally Having an affair, you're turning, in my days when we were dating, we used to call it two-timing. I don't know if you ever used that term. I'm two-timing you. It means you discover that, that the girl you thought was yours at high school, and, and, and she was yours. You discovered, You get on the bus on your way home, and there you see her with another guy around the corner holding hands. You're going, "Ha! Oh, she's got two boyfriends. And your heart sinks, and you go, "Ah, oh, I thought she was precious. I, I thought she was mine. In the meantime, she's two-timing. I don't know how many of you have ever experienced that. But it's, but it's hard to swallow, isn't it? It's hard to swallow being the, the victim. But James isn't saying that we're the victim. He's saying we are the one. He says you are the adulterer. You are the one that is betraying Christ. This language of marriage is not original to James. In the Old Testament, when Israel turned away from God, when they worship false idols and false gods, he uses stronger language that I won't necessarily use this morning. In Hosea, he uses the language of a whore or a, a prostitute, yet you've sold yourself to someone else. Of Israel, his people, when they walk away from him. And the ultimate commonly speaks of this as God's people. His bride, He comes for his bride and discovers that she's having an affair. Sam Albury puts it like this. And God takes it personally. I think you and I forget sometimes, can I just pause there, that our own sin against God, for God it's a personal matter. It's not a legal issue. It's not a law thing. This is a, a betrayal of love and relationship. It is a personal matter. Sometimes we can take sin as a legal contract and go, I've just broken some rules. No, no, no. This is a personal thing. And God takes it personally. Just like a husband who finds... His wife back in bed with the thug she was dating before he had come into her life and rescued her from that awful relationship. Such a husband would have every right to be angry. And James is very clear that being unfaithful to God provokes his enmity or his opposition. You make an enemy of God. Church, I want you to hear this. Pursuing this world Turning your back on Christ and pursuing what this world offers against pursuing what God is calling us to causes us to be at enmity with God. You are opposing what God has called us to. And God takes it personally. The big question is, are my desires godly or are my desires worldly? Am I living for what this world can offer me, or am I living for what God has called me to? Am I prepared to say no to the world? Because I can't say no to the world, and no to... When I say no to the world, I say yes to God, but you can't say yes and, and no to both of these. Do we chase the things of this world, the world chase... Sorry, do we chase the things the world chases, or are our deepest desires for the things of God... His reputation, the good of his people, and service of others. Is it Matthew that speaks of seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you? Matthew says, care more about God's reputation than your reputation. God says, care for my people. Who's his people? Us in the room, the church. We should care for one another. We should care that God's church is well. We should care that God's church is healthy. That God's church resembles the gospel and preaches the gospel. And we should serve one another, not ourselves. We should be able to serve one another, not get from one another, take from one another. Can you see our need for help, rescuing, our need for saving? This is you and I. When honor wants his way and knows that it hurts people or it hurts God, I place myself in direct opposition to God. I'm fighting with him. I'm betraying him. I'm selling myself out to another lover. We're old enough to know many friends who've gone through marital unfaithfulness it is not an easy thing to work through and walk through and there is a reason why james in this scripture points to this deliberately for us as christians he wants to almost shake the church and saying hey this is not a small thing this is the thing that wrecks marriages this is the thing that could ruin marriages and only by god's grace so what has to happen when that happens Incredible grace needs to flow from the faithful one, the one that, that didn't have the affair. Isn't that so? We're going we're gonna to break bread in a few minutes. And you and I are going to approach this table at communion this morning. We are coming as the unfaithful ones. <laughs> coming to our husband's table and going, I have been unfaithful. I need incredible grace from you to receive this meal. Hey. What does it require? Humble pie. A slice of humble pie saves us. And James ends with this. He, he goes hard, but then he ends with this. He goes, dear church, but he who gives more, more grace. Gee, who's, who gives more grace? God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the, the humble. He gives more grace to the humble. We have to humble ourselves and go, hey, I need your grace. I'm coming, at, I'm coming to this table as the unfaithful one, to my faithful husband. Remember the scene where the prodigal son comes home, and he says, if I could only be a servant, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beg my dad for, for a job. I'm going to beg my dad just to receive me and put me in the sheds with the servants. I don't care. I don't need, I, I don't deserve being a son. I don't deserve royalty. I don't deserve to be part of the family again. And what does, this, what does the father do? He says to this. first he says, bring the cloak. He puts a cloak on him and the ring. Now you're part of my family. This is a a family ring. You're part of me. And he says, prepare a feast for him. This unfaithful son comes home and his father prepares a meal. But the son had to humble. It says he he had to come to his own senses. Church, we have to come to our own senses before God. We have to come to our own senses and go, I am not like that song said, "I'm not the faithful one, I'm the faithless one. I'm the unfaithful one. And please, I beg you, do not sit if you're sitting in church going, "No, no, oh, no, I'm not that guy. I'm begging you, please hear the word of God, yeah. Each one of us are unfaithful. Each one of us, none of us are good, none of us are perfect. None of us can walk up to this table going, "I deserved, I earned this. Not one of us this morning can enter communion and have communion on the back of our faithfulness, on the back of our good works. We all humble ourselves. We have to humble ourselves before God and God's word. Sam Albury later says this, God finds us in bed with the world, yet he still wants us back so that we might enjoy the blessing of the life he promises Will you invite God's opposition or would you invite his grace? Friends, you have a choice to make this morning. I'm going to oppose God or I'm going to humble myself before God. I'm going to bend the knee or I'm going to stand on my own two feet. I would almost want to caution you. If you're standing on your own two feet this morning, rather not take Communion. Please hear my heart. Communion is reserved for those who humble themselves before God, who recognize I need saving, I need God in my life. Without that, we can't have this meal. There's no neutral, there's no third option. Either we go, yes, God, I am that unfaithful one. Yes, God, I am the one that cheated on you. My heart has desired something else. (coughs) Sorry. And James is calling the church back. He's saying, Hey church, own your own sin. Own your own guilt. Own your own unfaithfulness. You can only do that if you know that the one you're owning up to has enough grace And mercy and love for you. And you are so secure that no matter what you own up to, he's never gonna walk away from you. And that's what we come to this morning. We come to that faithful God. See, we can sing these songs and they're beautiful and they're true. But they have to get us to a place where we can own our own unfaithfulness. Go, God, in my heart of hearts, this is help me, I have I have sinned. (laughs) I have sinned. I have sinned that I'm working through. I'm, I'm longing for things of this world that's not yours, God. Please make you my treasure again. Our faithful husband has prepared a meal for us for his unfaithful wife. There's a reason that Jesus talks to the church as his bride. He says, You're my bride, I'm coming for you. He is coming back for us. That wedding day is coming. And just like the father prepared for the prodigal son a feast, but there's one step that we can bring to this. Is we can own it and we can humble ourselves before him, saying, This is, I need your grace. I need your forgiveness, Father God. When it comes to relational stuff, it's on me. What's going on in me? I can't change anybody that I don't get on with. I, I, I've tried. We've all done that. The one person that I, I'm responsible for before God is my own heart and me. And we can pray for the person we, we may be in conflict with or we're struggling with. Like I said, if you pray for that person enough, you're going to find it very, very hard to build any hatred or dislike. God will win your heart for that person through prayer. Mm-hmm. We Lord, we won't diminish your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness by by diminishing our brokenness and unfaithfulness. It's when we realise how broken, how unfaithful we are. And we really appreciate how how great you are. How great your love is, and how great your mercy is, Lord. We want to be a faithful people. We want to be a holy people. We want a people. Want to be a people who pursue your kingdom above our kingdoms. God, we confess that that's not easy. We confess that we don't always do that. We confess that we are unfaithful. We confess that we do not always pursue your kingdom first. I pray that this morning also just as we take communion maybe there are some relationships that you're just struggling with in the church outside of the church maybe you can just do in communion just bring those those friends of yours brothers and sisters before Christ and, and ask God for your grace and for, to give you grace to love pray for them that you would pray for them Jesus we We come before our faithful husband, our gracious, loving, caring husband that takes us who wander away from him, who are unfaithful to him, yet you invite us to become friends and sons and daughters. We have nothing to add. We have nothing to give. We humble ourselves in order to receive your grace this morning. We, are, we have nothing to be proud of other than that your grace has been shown towards us, that you open our eyes to your grace. And as we eat and as we drink, we, we eat and drink your forgiveness and your mercy and your grace upon my life, upon each one of us in this room. And I pray that we never forget that, that this is how we live day by day, receiving and remembering the grace of God over all of us so that we could extend that same grace, that same forgiveness and mercy towards those alongside us in the church to those who don't know Christ. In Jesus' name, we eat and we drink of your faithfulness and your grace towards us in Jesus' name. Amen.